This is True Crime New England. What's up, everybody? Hello, welcome back to another special spooky Halloween-themed episode. We are so glad to have you, and we're so excited about today's episode. It is going to be loaded. We're going to be throwing names at you, but my God, is it a good story. We have had this on our list for a while, actually. Forever. And it just really fit very well into our Halloween-themed episodes for the whole month of October. Yes, because it does have a spooky element in Mm -hmm. that cults are very spooky. And I don't know about you, Katie, but cults are one of my, like, true crime interests. I think they're very fascinating. I think they're so fascinating. Like, what drives somebody to, one, start a cult, right? and two, what drives someone to, I don't want to say fall into a cult, because it doesn't always happen that way, right? but... What drives somebody to look at a leader of a cult as a God. leader? Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. It is very interesting. And, you know, there's some really great documentaries, docuseries on, you know, various streaming platforms. Just the most popular one of recently, Keep Sweet, Pray, and Obey, um, about Warren Jeffs and the um, FLDS out in Utah and, you know, out west. That's a fantastic docu-series very informative very real um Mm -hmm. a great expose you know on that specific cult um but it's a really interesting topic because within the topic of cults you have so many other subtopics like some cults base their religion off of you know procreating with women and you know having like as many children as possible Others base it on God. Others base it on it's the supernatural. Yeah. It's very bizarre and so widespread that when I found out there was a cult in Massachusetts, I was surprised. Because I was like, wow, I had never heard of this. And it's kind of really messed up. Yeah. And I mean, it happened during a time when maybe... The satanic panic was adding a lot of emphasis on the idea of this cult. So, I mean, that didn't help. Yeah, no. And the satanic panic as a time period in itself Mm -hmm. was very much fueling a lot of fear Mm -hmm. and a lot of alleged things going on. I mean, all over the country. It was everywhere. And it it was an epidemic. People were terrified. Yeah. Kids would, at this point, I feel like rebellious teenagers would act out and pretend or at least use that as a scapegoat to kind of express themselves. It was just like adding fuel to the fire for these God-fearing Christians all over the country. Truly. Yeah. It's so crazy. They would, and there's nothing wrong with modern day Satanism, like at all. That's just another religion. Um, To take it and say compare it to satanic panic and what everyone thought was a part of satanism is where that problem is Mm -hmm. because you know you have in the 80s the satanic panic which involved blood rituals and human sacrifices and you know bloody pentagrams carved into bodies and just like 
awful stuff that made everyone terrified. <laughs> so crazy. Or like the rumors of that happening. Yes. It's so wild. Which I read somewhere that there, for all of the accusations and the alleged events of cults, like literally such a small percentage of them even happened. Like there wasn't even really any... It was oh, just yeah. all rumors. No, it was it was panic. Yeah, truly. It was panic and drama and, you know, it's just, it's so wild. Um, Crazy. But yeah, this case is a really good example of that, kind of. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it just really fit into our Halloween-themed episodes. It's very interesting. A lot of moving parts, but guys, definitely stick around. I mm-hmm. think you'll really like it. It's probably going to be one of our better stories, only because it is so loaded. Yes. Yes. You also will notice that there's going to be an ad in this episode. Um, if you've been listening, you're probably familiar with the ad that Liz and I did for Anchor, the platform that we like to use to distribute our podcast as elsewhere. You know. Yes, as you probably very well know by now. But yeah, we got an opportunity to start doing ads, like legitimate ads yeah. that people send us and we just kind of plop in there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's not going to be in every episode, but we just wanted to give you guys a heads up so you weren't caught off guard that there's an ad. Yes. And we also want to remind you that we don't make money off of this podcast. So the idea of having an ad to make money, um, is really nice because then we can do merch for you guys, which is all we've wanted to do. Exactly. We're going to use the money from ads to kind of put back into the podcast. So like you said, Liz, merch, Mm -hmm. um, maybe donating in the future, aside from the swear jar, the swear jar comes from us directly. But you know, if there ever comes a time where like back in the day, we did one for the Trevor Project because an episode that we did, um, Charlie Howard, the murder of Charlie Howard, that was really a tough one. Yes, it was really a tough one. And it was very homophobic and fueled by, you know, he was murdered because he was gay. Right. So because we did an episode on that, we donated to the Trevor Project. So just kind of stuff like that in the future. But just as a heads up, we are doing an ad. We will be using that money for the podcast. Yes. It's not like we're going to go on a shopping spree or something. No. Shopping spree for the listeners. (laughs) Get as much... We got some great ideas in the works, and I think you guys will really like them. Um, It's pretty simple stuff so stick around for that too so thank you guys for your cooperation and acceptance of the ads yeah appreciate it besides that we got a the big case to get into today so definitely stick around and without further ado today we will be covering the the fall River river cult murders start with our sources nothing new katie could you tell me what you have sure i have wikipedia <gasps> of course a classic love it also murderpedia <gasps> me too <laughs> the herald news rollingstone.com masslive.com therap.com and law.justia.com all right similarly to you katie i have wikipedia I have Murderpedia. I also have Rolling Stone, The Daily Beast, Herald News, South Coast Murders and Mysteries, and also something called Cult Nation. Hell yeah. Great. Awesome. All right, let's get started on this crazy journey. 
Katie, would you mind starting us off? Sure. In the years of 1979 through 1980, a teenage girl and two young women, 17-year-old Doreen Levesque, 19-year-old Barbara Raposa, and 20-year-old Karen Marsden were brutally and gruesomely murdered in the Fall River area of Massachusetts. Their murders took place during the Satanic Panic, and given this time period, as well as the very graphic nature of their murders, there was a massive frenzy around the whole thing. Yeah. We've ventured to Fall River, Massachusetts before in one of our Halloween-themed episodes last year where we covered Lizzie Borden. Yes. So this town already has a reputation for being creepy. Oh, yeah. And unfortunately, with this case, it just got more creepy and awful. And like we've talked about, the satanic panic really put people over the edge. Mm -hmm. Everyone was very nervous. Yes. The first murder took place on the night of October 13, 1979. 17-year-old Doreen Levesque's body was found under the bleachers of Diamond Regional Vocational Technical High School the next morning at 6 a.m. by two joggers who had been using the school track. The way that her body was found was gruesome. Yeah. Um, she had been bludgeoned brutally. Yeah. She had been sexually assaulted, and she was found naked. Yeah. She had actually suffered so much trauma to the head and the face that they were only able to identify her after police released a sketch of her that was published in local newspaper. Her body was found tied up with fishing wire, and her face and her head were crushed in with a large rock that was found nearby. Private investigator Chris Hayes also stated, this girl had a baseball bat shoved inside of her. I did not know that detail. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. This poor girl, it's very obvious that she suffered greatly before she died. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you from experience, because my dad is a fisherman, fishing wire is awful. Like, you wrap that around you, it hurts. It digs into your skin. Yeah. You get wounds. It's, it burns if you yeah. pull... Yeah, so she... If she was alive when she was tied up, which I'm guessing she was, that alone would be so painful. Mm -hmm. And then to be bashed over the head, they think with a rock, several times, that's awful. Brutal. And of course, at first people thought, wow, this is really messed up. It's just an awful murder. Some people maybe thought that she was murdered, you know, over the head with a rock was maybe a ritual of some sort. Mm -hmm. That was kind of stemming from the satanic panic, of course, but they didn't really think anything long term, anything broad over the county. No. And Doreen also, her murder was kind of treated a little differently in the eyes of law enforcement, given that it was 1979. Right. And Doreen also was 17 years old and a sex worker. Yes. She even was a runaway, like, out of foster care, so she really had no address. Naturally, that puts her in a position with law enforcement where they won't take her case very seriously. Yeah. Which, clearly, this is a serious case. I mean, look how her body was found. A hundred percent. She had, like you said, Liz, left her foster care placement in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and she was homeless at the time. Yeah. And she had gone to Fall River to meet up with another sex worker who called herself Gail. Mm -hmm. um, there's speculation as to whether or not this other sex worker 
was legitimate or right. if it was just kind of a ploy to get someone who might be hard to track down and maybe wouldn't be missed to the area. Right. So there is debate on that. That's a good point. Unfortunately, the horror doesn't stop with Doreen's murder. Um, On November 8th, 1979, not too long after Doreen was found, a man named Andy Maltai stopped by the Fall River Police Department, and he was frantic. He had to report his girlfriend, 19-year-old Barbara Raposa, missing. Here's a real quick, guys. Barbara, like I just said, she's 19. Andy is 43. So this creep is preying on young women. Mm-hmm. And we'll get into that more. Basically, um, Barbara was a single mom of a little boy. And unfortunately, she did have a history of drug abuse and sex work. She had actually been reported missing earlier by her dad, who said that she had failed to pick up her son from the babysitter. Um, And then Andy comes in and he's like, my girlfriend is missing. So supposedly she had last been seen getting dropped off downtown by a male friend. So she could work the streets, of course. And so when Andy made this report, he gave some really weird details and gave off some really weird vibes that made the police uncomfortable. He kind of was like mumbling under his breath something about a satanic cult which, of course, during the satanic panic, had everyone tweaking. Yeah. So the cops were like, I'm sorry, what was that? Yeah, could you uh, repeat that a little louder, Just please? a little louder. <laughs> so when they were like, what's that? Andy then protruded a Bible from wherever and said, you know, he once worshipped Satan. Don't get him wrong. He did have that past, but now he loves Jesus Christ. And so he carried the Bible with him, I guess, to the police station. And then he informs them that Barbara, you know, the missing young woman, had also practiced Satanism with him in this cult. It was a local cult, and there was several, I mean, really young women a part of this cult, as well as some creepy guys around town, and they loved Satan. So that was not very settling for the police officers who already were like, okay, we have one dead teenager last month this is awful who killed her and now they're like okay we have another missing young woman and this guy's mentioning a cult oh shit andy wanted to help the police he did you know he had his bible he had some information and he said i can point you guys in the direction of two young women who are also a part of this cult who may know where barbara is and also might know what really happened to doreen And the police were like, whoa, what? We're going to have to, like, you know, get in cahoots with these young women. You know, talk to them and figure out what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so, and we'll talk about them in a few minutes, but... And now the police were thinking they had a connection to two young women who were supposedly connected to these two murders of these young women in their small town. Now, Barbara's body wasn't found until several months later. Mm -hmm. Her remains were found in the wooded area on the outskirts of Fall River, and she was found by some hunters, which usually when someone is in a remote wooded area, we hear about hunters stumbling across their body, which is awful. Every time. Her autopsy revealed that she had been killed soon after she was last seen back in early November, Mm -hmm. 
She, like Doreen, had also been tied up, and her skull was also brutally crushed. Yeah. It seemed so similar. Mm -hmm. And so with the knowledge that the police had that this maybe was connected to Doreen's already, and then finding her body and having very similar cause of death, it kind of clicked for them. And they were like, oh my god, maybe this cuckoo isn't lying. Yeah, maybe he's onto something here. Yeah, they were scared for their lives, I'm sure. So naturally, I think in decent police work, um, I hate to admit it, but the first person the police went to was Andy. Because, I mean, one, he was the boyfriend. Two, he was like 17,000 years older than her. And then he, of course, had mentioned prior, you know, that this was maybe a cult thing. So, of course, he denied any involvement. But then a few days later, he came back to the police station. And he, this was all on his own. He voluntarily came back and he said, guys, you're never going to believe this. And they were like, what's going on, Andy? Do you have some information about Barbara? And this is when he shared that he had a, quote, psychic dream in which all of the details of Barbara's murder came into his brain. And the police were like, well, that's cool. Tell us more, Andy, bud. <laughs> to have a seat. What what happened in your dream? Yeah, sit down and let's have a conversation maybe in the interrogation room over yeah, there. Yeah, we'll just record it for, you know, <laughs> to see if maybe it matches up with a investigate. Like, they were like, this guy could not be any dumber. <laughs> and so in this description, of course, um, of his psychic dream, Andy shared that he knew the exact location of her body and then he shared the exact position it was in the time of death how she died and other details that as it always goes weren't even made public and so the police were like oh my god that is a crazy dream like that is so nuts that you saw that in your brain real quick we're gonna just put these handcuffs on you this idiot thought he was clever i i want to know what was going through his head right. where he was like what if i pretend it was a psychic dream <laughs> right. they're never gonna know or maybe he's so far off his rocker mm -hmm. that he convinced himself it was a psychic dream Ugh. and he's gonna go tell them about this dream to ease his conscience okay yeah i can see that when really he's like i'm gonna go confess in the form of a psychic, a psychic dream. dream, which is very convincing. But, you know, he, I can imagine him with his fingers to his temple, eyes closed, saying, I see her in the woods. Her head is smashed, like just fake. I do not like this man. He was a piece of shit. Right. Preying on young girls, as we know. Yes. So, like we said, the police definitely arrested him with his um, psychic information, and uh, that was on February 7th, 1980, not too long after Barbara's body was found, and he was charged with Barbara's murder. So, like I promised, there's a lot of characters in this story, and I'm going to introduce you to two more. Um, their names are Robin Murphy and Karen Marsden. So Robin Murphy was 17 years old. She was a sex worker and also aspiring to be a pimp. She was described as being tough and calculating and also she was raised on the streets. She had a very hardened demeanor. 
while Karen, she was 20 years old at this time. She was a single mother and she was also a sex worker and a drug abuser. Um, she was the complete opposite of Robin, described as being nervous and quiet and very emotional. Surprisingly, these two women were roommates and they were also lovers. Mm-hmm. And I only say surprisingly because they were so different. Yeah, opposites attract, but Not only to a certain extent, I feel like. Right. It's a really bizarre dynamic between these two women. And young women. Robin Murphy is 17, and I want you guys to remember that because she's in this a lot mm-hmm. and not in a good way. And then Karen Marsden is, like I said, 20, and she's just so nervous and anxious, and clearly something is on her mind. Um, these two women did claim to know Andy um, Malti, and they said they just knew him from around. They didn't know him from anything specific, quote unquote. So they were kind of hiding where they knew these people and these connections even though they were named by Andy um, as the connections to the cult. When he went in to say, my girlfriend's missing. (laughs) Whatever happened to her? On the evening of February 8th, 1980, 20-year-old sex worker Karen Marson was picked up by police. They wanted to ask her a couple questions about these satanic rituals going on in the area because her name came up in connection to them. Right. And they wanted her to take them to where these rituals took place. Right. She's nervous. She's anxious. She is sitting in the back of the police car, sobbing. Yeah. Incoherent, in a full panic. And all that she's really saying clearly is that the police need to drop her off Mm -hmm. because she cannot be seen talking to them because her pimp would kill her. Yeah. If he found out. Yes. Another thing that the police gathered from her just sobbing in a panic is that her pimp, or at least how she referred to him, was that his name was Satan. Yeah. So they're having a little bit of a light bulb moment. They're going, okay, so Karen's probably involved. Her pimp, named Satan, is most definitely involved, yes. if not the ringleader. Because if you have a satanic cult, someone who likes to be called Satan might be the leader, or at least plays a big role. Yes, and that would be absolutely correct. Karen finally gets police to drop her off at St. Mary's Church mm-hmm. because she's just sobbing and she's begging to talk to a priest, and they let her out. They leave her at the door of the rectory, And this is the last time that she was seen alive. Yes. So, you know, it took a lot of bravery for Karen to get to that point. And she had had several interactions with the police at this point, um, kind of like helping on the side. Mm -hmm. So she kind of branched away from her lover, Robin, and was talking to them separately and admitted that she thinks that Robin had a pretty big part in the cult as well. In fact... One day before, obviously, she went missing, she and a fellow sex worker named Carol Fletcher took the Fall River police to the nearby Freetown State Forest, um, where some of the nocturnal gatherings, quote unquote, happened. And while they were walking with police, 
they passed this like small pool of water that was covered in algae and Karen got visibly upset visibly shaken and she pointed at it and she told the police that this is the spot where Carl would quote inject battery acid into her veins and quote offer her soul to Satan so she seemed to think that that was like an altar of some sort um, or like a portal a ritual spot for her pimp Carl is his name Satan as she referred to him that's where it was all going to happen where she was going to be murdered and one article that I was reading did bring up a good point is that maybe Karen wasn't even so scared of the idea of being killed, but more that she would be condemned to hell for the rest of her life. As a God-fearing woman, somebody who believed in heaven and hell and purgatory, she thought from this connection and knowing Carl Drew, who we will talk about in a few minutes, and being a sex worker, she was so sure she was going to hell. Mm -hmm. So the thought of being sacrificed made it so much worse for her because she knew she was never getting to heaven. And so she, like you said, when she met up with the police and they were driving her around, she was a mess because at this point she knew. She knew her fate was sealed. Mm -hmm. And she even told Robin that if anyone killed her, it would be Carl Drew, the leader of the cult that they were a part of and also their pimp. About two months after Karen was last seen, on April 13th, 1980, parts of Karen's skull and several of her teeth were found in the forest on the outskirts of Fall River in an area commonly known as Family Beach. Oh. Which is really... Ironic. Yeah. yeah. They also found some scraps of clothing, blood-stained rocks, some jewelry, and a clump of hair. Ugh. Authorities were able to identify what little of the remains they had as Karen using skull x-rays that were taken back in 1978 when she was having some issues with her sinuses yeah. and had gotten x-rays of her skull and her face. Yeah. The rest of her body has still never been recovered. That is so incredibly tragic and so, so awful. It sounds like Karen was brutally murdered bone fragments like portions of her skull do you know the amount of force you need to fracture somebody's skull a lot oh and then some of her teeth yeah blood-stained rocks i know so that automatically to me ties into the other murders of barbara and doreen because those two are also bludgeoned in the head with rocks yes so clearly the three of these murders are connected Yes, I would say that's probably a good assumption. So, you might remember from a little earlier I mentioned Carol Fletcher, who was another sex worker that worked with closely with Karen, and together they went out with the police and showed them the Freetown State Forest. Um, and after Karen's body was found, Carol came forward and said, Hey, I think I have some details that you maybe don't know. I know who's responsible for Karen's murder. It's Robin Murphy and Carl Drew. So obviously we've talked about Robin Murphy. She's the 17 year old who was lovers with Karen Marston. Um, I don't know if they were in a relationship, but they were definitely romantically involved. Um, and then Carl Drew, who I did mention a little bit um, about being Satan. That was 
what Karen referred to him as because she truly thought this man was the devil. Because he referred to himself as that, first of all. And second of all, he was a piece of shit. Yeah. Yeah. So let me give you a little details on Carl Drew. At this time, Carl Drew was 26 years old. He was a violent man, and he was also a known pimp. And he was operating out of the Bedford Street District, which, you know, was what Karen Marson was a part of, among others in this story. Um, He was definitely known to associate with all of the things of the local, like, criminal underground, all the happenings. Despite the rumor mill of, like, the satanic panic, that's, of course, we've talked about, is going rampant at this time, Carl actually did lead a small cult that practiced Satanism. Um, And as we know, he referred to himself as Satan. It also came out that Carl was a pimp for Doreen, the first murder victim. And then that kind of tied into the whole, like, oh, maybe he's involved with these murders. Maybe that's something that's happening right now. Additionally, Carl was known to lead meetings of his cult with loud chants and prayers in a different language, as well as advocating for human sacrifice. Oh boy. Oh my god. Yeah. We know that Karen was very nervous and she was scared of her pimp, Carl, and of course referred to him as Satan. When she and Robin were initially interviewed by police, like, hey, we know you guys are a part of this cult, can you give us details? She broke down crying and said, Carl Drew killed Doreen. She was like so sure of it. So now they have this connection to Doreen and they have a connection to Karen now, all through Carl. So they're like, okay, this satanic panic is starting to be a satanic reality. Mm -hmm. So they were now connecting the dots like, well, shit. All these pieces are coming into place and they all involve Carl Drew, this creepy Andy character, this 17-year-old girl, Robin, who seems to be tough as nails and also have an ulterior motive, this nervous girl, Karen, who's sure she's going to be killed and then is. It's a lot of messy storyline players. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What we do know for sure is that Carl was abusive. Yes. He ruled his sex workers that worked for him with fear. Yes. That was his whole thing to keep the girls in line was he constantly had them fearing for their lives. He scared the shit out of them. Yeah. Um, I mean, Karen saying to police, if he finds out I'm talking to you, he's going to kill me. Yeah. The girls were just terrified of him. Very abusive. And now he has this huge role in three horrific murders absolutely sex workers yeah absolutely brutal murders very violent Mm -hmm. very personal carl drew was actually sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for the murder of karen marsden robin murphy was also convicted but she was charged with second degree murder in exchange for testifying against carl and andy melte right in her testimony she admitted that she helped carl kill Karen, and sacrifice her to Satan. And the details are awful. There are court documents about Robin's involvement with Carl and how they killed Karen. Mm -hmm. It's really disturbing. It's intense. Very graphic. And the thought... You have to remember that Robin was in a relationship 
with Karen at this time. And she's a teenage girl. She's 17. 17 years old. It's so young. It's awful and disturbing. Very disturbing. Um, major content warning here, mm-hmm. I will say. Court documents stated, quote, Robin Murphy dragged Karen Marsden by the throat and hair into the woods. Murphy and the defendant, a.k.a. Carl Drew, mm-hmm. then began striking Marsden with rocks. After further brutalizing Marsden, the defendant ordered Murphy to slit Marsden's throat and Murphy complied. The defendant then tore the head from the body and kicked it. She says that they were kicking it around like it was a soccer ball. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Carl also ripped Karen's hair and fingernails out in an act of torture before beating her over the head with the rocks. Yeah. Carl then manually snapped her neck and had Robin slit Karen's throat before he removed her head so the cult members could kick it around. Yeah. The cult members cut off Karen's fingers to steal her rings, and it was said that Carl raped her corpse. Mm -hmm. He then was said to have carved an X on the chest, and then he dipped his fingers in the blood and smeared the blood on Robin's forehead Mm -hmm. as part of the satanic ritual. Yes. And some sources even say that Robin admitted to being forced to perform oral sex on Karen's corpse Wow! after the fact. So, like, she was dead, did not have her head attached to her body. Awful, awful stuff. And she she said she was in, like, a trance-like state. Does that excuse that? Absolutely not. You can't even begin to fathom some parts of that. No, yeah. And, you know, there is a lot of dispute as to what is legitimate, like what legitimately happened and what was exaggerated Mm -hmm. during the time of the satanic panic. Right. You know, people would often spread these crazy rumors, um, like they ripped her head off and kicked it like a soccer ball and did this. So it's really, we're not 100% sure on how much of this is legitimate and how much of this is fabricated for the sake of it being the satanic panic yes um but this is just what court documents stated and this is what some articles surrounding this case stated and you know some of it is backed up by the fact of they only found parts of her skull Mm -hmm. a clump of her hair jewelry yes where, you know, they said they cut off her fingers to steal some of her jewelry. Her clothes. Mm-hmm. And then Robin admitted that to finish it off, you know, the whole murder, they dragged Karen's body deeper into the woods, doused her with gasoline, and then burnt her to ashes. Wow. So it would make sense that the only thing they could find was parts of her skull after being bashed over the head with rocks. Just like Doreen and just like Barbara, but her death was much more brutal because she talked to the police. Yeah, it very much was more personal Mm -hmm. with her death. And that's very obvious with the remains that were found, Mm -hmm. as well as what was just described. Yeah. Brutal. Yeah, it's awful. So, like you said, Katie, Robin took that plea deal, second degree murder, for a much shorter sentence. Um, and plus she was 17 at the time. That's crazy to me. It's bananas to think that she would have that capability inside of her. First of all, that anyone would have that capability to do all of that. That's disturbing. 
That's so wild. Ugh. So the first one to actually go on trial was Andy, and he went on trial in January of 1981 for the murder of just Barbara Raposa. Um, he was given a life sentence without the possibility of parole. Unfortunately, this sack of shit died just 17 years into his life sentence in 1998. Damn. Not enough time. No one was ever convicted for Doreen's murder. Yeah. Which is unfortunate because clearly there are some connections here. For sure. And the way that her body was described, so brutal. Yeah. So brutal. It's just awful. And so similar to Barbara. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if it was Andy who killed her as well. Those are my thoughts. Right? Here's where shit starts to get more interesting in the sense that it gets complicated. Right. As if it wasn't already before. So many people introduced in this story. Oh my god. Robin later recants her testimony in 1985, and she said that she was coerced by the district attorney to lie on the stand to put Carl away for Karen's murder, and that she is innocent and was not involved. Which is interesting because she got what she wanted right. at that point, which was Carl Drew being sent to jail, mm -hmm. Andy Malti being sent to jail. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. hmm. Carol Fletcher, the other witness we discussed, yes. also recanted her testimony in 2004. Right. Yes. You know, they kind of both got Carl in jail on those convictions. So the fact that they suddenly were like, mm, just kidding, really took a toll on the cases against Carl Drew and their own cases. Because now they are unreliable and not good witnesses. And Robin, again, was in jail. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, where do they go from here? They lied. They say they lied on the stand. What happens next? Robin even said that she had made the whole satanic part up, which could be just how the times were with the satanic panic and it being such a popular topic. Um... And she also claimed that she told these stories because she was so convinced that Carl would kill her girlfriend, Karen, mm -hmm. because of Karen's fear that he would do that. And like knowing Carl herself, she was like, that is 100% within the realm of possibility. Right, because Karen was so terrified. She kept saying, Carl is going to kill me. Yeah. Carl is going to murder me. Yeah. It's... Oh, it's just crazy. It's awful. Robin also had cause to put Andy Malte away. Mm. She actually first met Andy when she was only 11. He sexually abused her over the course of several years. Yeah. And one of Robin's really good friends later described Robin telling her about Andy taking her into the woods and brutally raping her. Yeah. And she went to police and police wouldn't even take the report from her because she was 12. Ugh. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So Robin said to the parole board at one of her later parole hearings mm -hmm. that she saw Andy with other young girls and she saw herself in those young girls and she thought, oh my God, I need to put a stop to this. I can't let other girls go through 
what I went through with him. He's a child predator. Absolutely he is. So even though she was younger than Barbara, she felt very defensive and protective over Barbara also being a teenage girl. Right. And she felt very protective over the other girls that Andy was grooming and yes. abusing and raping mm. and using for sex work. Right. Because she was in that position for years. Such a long time. So I think that's very interesting, too, when police asked Robin, oh, how do you know Andy Malte? She's like, oh, you know, just around. Yeah. Because they would have connected the two sooner if they had taken her report. Right. So that just speaks to her overall mistrust of law enforcement, and I mean, in her situation, rightfully so. Oh, yeah, I don't blame her so much. It's just crazy. Especially as a sex worker, I think, um, regardless, you're going to have distrust in the police. 100%. Because they don't trust you. 100%. Yeah. So, actually, in 2004, Robin was released on parole. Yeah. Um, which is crazy. So, she had spent 25 years in jail, give or take. And so, they were like, okay, great. See ya. They released her, and she actually stayed out free until 2011 when she was caught having, like, a romantic relationship with someone who was a drug dealer, which was a violation of her parole. And so she actually got thrown back in jail, and mm-hmm. she's still there. Still hanging out in jail. Mm-hmm. Just recently, actually, in March of 2022, she had another parole hearing. And this is where she told the parole board again that she lied about the murders so she would help put Carl and Andy in prison. Yeah. And she tells them again, you know, I've been involved with Andy since I was 11. He's abusive. Yeah. I wanted him away because of what he was doing to those other girls. I genuinely thought Carl was going to kill my girlfriend at the time, Karen. They needed to go away. Right. So she's kind of recanting everything that she said to put them away. Right to get herself out. So it is a very tricky situation Mm -hmm. because she is kind of manipulating things in her favor. Yes. So it does make it hard to believe what she is saying. Mm -hmm. But I will say that there is definitely some truth to at least some of her statements. Yeah, absolutely there is. Which is crazy and just makes the whole thing a lot more complicated. (laughs) But, you know, true crime doesn't have to be black and white, but it's just so wild to try to wrap your brain around. Oh, it's insane. At this parole hearing back in March of 2022, Assistant District Attorney in Bristol County Patrick Bomberg, retired Fall River Detective and State Representative Alan Sylvia, who investigated the Fall River cult murders, Oh. and Patricia DeSudo, who was friends with Barbara Raposa, all spoke in favor of keeping Robin in prison. Yeah. Patricia described Robin as, quote, a narcissistic, psychopathic, sociopathic liar. Wow. And said that she was actually the ringleader of the murders and not Carl. Mm -hmm. Dr. Charlene Bonner, chair of the parole board, said that Robin has faced, quote, incredible trauma, sexual, physical trauma, and has done a lot in prison to better herself, like getting her bachelor's degree. Which is good for her. I mean, sure. But that doesn't take away what happened. 100%. One of the articles I read, too, was in the perspective of, um, I believe it was like an undercover cop. And he, at the end of it, he said that he believes that it was Robin who was really the ringleader. Yes. I think she is not as innocent as she's trying to paint herself to be, which, of course, a lot of criminals do that, understandably. But I think she's really hiding some deep, deep shit. And I think that's a part of the narcissism. Mm Mm-hmm. 
for sure. 100%. Yeah. In May of 2021, director James Buddy Day put out a four-part documentary called Fall River. Mm. He used news reports, reenactments, and even interviews with Robin and Carl and other people directly involved in the murders. And he did a really good job placing the murders in the context of the satanic panic. Mm -hmm. James feels that the context is especially important to show how the murders were perceived by law enforcement as well as the public. And he stated, quote, They just grabbed onto the idea that Satanism had to be a motivator for these murders without any evidence, and then that colored the rest of the case. Hmm. This, unfortunately, was very common for crimes, especially very gruesome crimes, that took place during that time. In this particular case, there is admittedly a lack of physical evidence linking Carl and Robin to the crimes. Mm -hmm. The timeline is very messy, as we've discussed. And multiple witnesses, aside from Robin, later admitted that their testimonies were false. Right. In 2016, Carl Drew actually made a blog declaring his innocence. (laughs) And director James Day found the blog and wanted to make the documentary about Carl. Yeah. But it ended up being about the entire case as well as background on the time period with the satanic panic. Right. James's investigation has fueled an innocence program out of Massachusetts to look into Carl's case and get him a new trial. Which I think is a good idea. I think that is so fascinating. Yeah. To think that this man who was painted as Satan, the ringleader of a satanic cult responsible Mm -hmm. for these murders, might not be the person that did them. Right. That's crazy. (laughs) The documentary also explores a really fascinating theory that Andy Malte may have had more to do with the other murders. I think that's a good theory, to be honest. I think that's extremely fair. I mean, we have three underage girls who Mm -hmm. all knew him, all had involvement with him. Yeah. And he was a pedophile. (laughs) Exactly. He was a pedophile. He was raping girls. He's a known child predator. Yeah. I mean, I really don't think it's that far off. No, not for Doreen anyway, because he would have been in jail when Karen was murdered. But I bet you he wasn't... He wouldn't have been telling Carl or whoever not to kill her. Mm-hmm. I bet if they went to him, he'd be like, do it this way. Yes. You know? The documentary also does a really good job at exploring the bias that law enforcement had against the murder victims mm. who were all using drugs and were all sex workers at the time. Right. It also goes into depth about how the victim's friends felt that they were all exploited by Carl. Yeah who was a terrible person and a pimp who used fear to control people around him. There's debate that he wasn't even a Satan worshiper Mm -hmm. and that it was just something that was pinned on him because he was a darker, scary person that was feared in that time. There's also debate that he even murdered Doreen and Karen, of course. Right. I personally am very intrigued by the theory that Carl is innocent. Me too. Um, I'm not sure... If I believe that he's innocent 100%, Mm -hmm. um, I do think it's very interesting the correlation of the time period and the satanic panic around the context of this case. It's just wild (laughs) to read articles and then have a documentary come out and potentially dispute them. Right. It's so wild. It's crazy. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah, the documentary is on... 
I want to say Amazon Prime, and it's on a couple other funky little E-Pix. locations as well. Yeah, yeah, Epix and Amazon Prime, and there's like a couple other funky places you can find it. But it's called Fall River, mm-hmm. and I haven't had the chance to watch it myself because I do not have Prime. Me neither. But I've heard very good things about it, mm-hmm. and they interview you know detectives and yes. friends and family and people around the victims, mm-hmm. as well as Robin and Carl themselves. Which is nuts. So wild. Yeah. And yeah, that's the case of the Fall River cult murders. That's, it's a, it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but it's so interesting. Yeah. It, um, it almost has um, potential to be creepypasta. I mean, honestly. Yeah. Just because of so how it's wild. intertwangled with the yes. twists and the turns and, oh, it's nuts. Huge thank you to a listener named Brittany L. who sent us this case through our handy dandy website submission tool. Um, you sent it to us way back in the day. Yes. But we're finally covering it, so yeah. thank you so much. Thanks, Brittany. And um, speaking of which, if you guys want to send us a case of your own, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at TrueCrimeNE. All lowercase. Or you can send us an email with your ideas or your cases at TrueCrimeNE at gmail.com. You could also head over to our website at truecrimene.com. You could go to our handy-dandy submission tool where you could send us your thoughts on this case, other cases you'd like for us to cover based in New England, please, questions, comments, concerns, feedback, and maybe just your thoughts. How's your day going? Yeah, tell us what you're thinking about. Hell yeah. And if you would be so kind, if you have several spare seconds of your very busy day, I'm sure, you could go to Spotify and leave us a star rating. Or if you're an Apple Podcasts person, you could go over there to our page and you could leave us a star rating and or a written review. Normally, people will give us five stars. So if you want to keep on with the tradition, <laughs> we invite that. And uh, with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye. Uh, Thank <laughs> you.